Well, let's, let's read from the scriptures. Uh, and in fact, I'd ask you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and read through this chapter. It'll be helpful for us to have it in our mind as we then walk through the text. Um, in fact, if you're able to read through and kind of consider what we heard during the scripture reading, it really will be quite effective to think through the setting and circumstances as Paul writes what he does to the, the church at Thessalonica. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, that will be where we're at for our time this morning. And so just follow along as I read chapter 3 verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us, as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. As we saw in the scripture reading, Paul was abruptly um, mandated to leave Thessalonica as he ministered amongst them. And so as you read here in chapter 3, you hear of the, the difficulty it was for him to not be with the Thessalonians. His desire to hear how they were doing, um, as verse 8 is this focus theme, were they still standing fast in the Lord? And so he could not wait any longer. He must know how are the Thessalonians doing. They received the gospel. Are they walking in um, a manner worthy of their calling? Are they standing fast? That will be what we'll look at this morning. Our call will be to stand fast in the Lord. And just as an introduction, I just point to a story that has always stuck in my mind. Some stories just stay with you. And so there was a class I was taking in seminaries. This is some 18 years ago. Still vivid memory in my mind. There was a parenting class that I was taking, and I was soaking in this. Uh, Carrie and I were uh, married for just 
several months at this point, and we were excited to have several kids would be the plan in the future. And so I was taking this class seriously. I wanted to learn about how to be a, a, a faithful parent, a biblical parent. And so this professor was very practical, taught very helpful um, instruction just on how to parent biblically. And so he, he taught all of these practical tips. And then one day he came into class and he said, I got a story for you. This past weekend, got to apply some of the principles that I've been teaching y'all. A lot was taught of first-time obedience and things like that. So he and his um, pretty large family were in New York City, and they were about to travel somewhere, and they needed to ride on a subway. And so he and his family were gathering all their stuff, getting ready to get on the subway. The doors had opened. They're getting ready to walk on into the subway, and one of their sons walked into the subway, and the doors closed. And they were in New York City, and their very young son, eyes wide open, is looking through the glass, and they are quite concerned. So the father looked him in the eyes, and he said, get off at the next stop. So they made that eye contact, had no ability to hear, but he just tried to mouth the words, and for the next seven or eight minutes, they had the most anxious-filled parenting in their life to think, how was their son doing? He's in this subway. Is he safe? There's, is he being harmed by those who are on the, on the subway with him? Is he going to like not listen to us and act like Kevin McAllister in New York City? I mean, what is going to happen here? And all this is running through their mind as they wait for the next subway. And all the other siblings are asking their parents, what are we going to do, Dad? What are we going to do? And he said, we're going to get off the next stop. And, and so they get on the subway, and they ride a very long ride to whatever the next stop was. And as the, as the um, train begins to slow down into the stop, they look out, and they see their son standing there where he was told to be, obeying his parents, standing fast. And they just found so much comfort immediately upon seeing their son standing fast after they were tormented by, by all sorts of concern for their son, whom they loved. And I just find that to be very similar to, to what you're hearing Paul express about his love for this church in Thessalonica. Because we're stepping into a point in Paul's ministry where he had ministered amongst this church. And he has similar emotions about them, a heartfelt concern for them because he was torn away from them, and he has not been able to see them. He knows what he taught them. He knows what they ought to do. Are they doing what they were left with? And so he has this love for them, and they've been placed into harm's way, and he's not with them. They are alone, and so he has great concern for them. And so as you jump in to chapter 3 of this letter, a letter which in fact is written in light of this report that he hears from Timothy about the well-being of this church, Paul quickly responds with this letter to them, one of his early epistles in fact, to, to share with them of his love for them and his concern for them but primarily his thankfulness for them, for their faith, which is increasing and abounding. And his prayer is that that would continue. And so a fascinating text for us 
to, cons- to consider this morning, finding uh, the Apostle Paul delighting in this church, a church that is experiencing much hostility. Uh, are they overwhelmed by this hostility? Are, are they facing it well? Paul knows that this hostility is going to be used by Satan. Probably he's already instrumental in the hostility that's taking place. But he knows that Satan's going to use this to tempt them to despair, to tempt them to abandon the faith, to tempt them to make a shipwreck of their faith. And so he's very concerned for them. And he needed to be with them. He's not with them. They're without their pa- a pastor. And, and so he desires... Uh, to, to be with them. In fact, he makes multiple attempts prior to writing this letter to be with them, and all of those attempts were thwarted. So I think it would be helpful even to kind of walk through a little bit of the letter, uh, the events, or even just descriptions that are given in the first two chapters, just to kind of help us grab this awareness of the relationship that, that Paul has with this church and his love for them and their love for him. And so just kind of walk through Turn back to chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians, and let's just read of, of Paul's ministry to them. Um, well, you know what? A lot of this is even just on your mind from what you read in Acts, Acts 17. So some of it won't be here in 1 Thessalonians, but think of what we read from Acts 17. You know, as was Paul's custom, as he entered into Thessalonica, he would first minister um, in the synagogue to the Jews. We see that he's there for several weeks ministering, ministering to them, and some were persuaded. Some of the Jews were persuaded. Um, it seems best to understand then that after these several weeks of ministering in the synagogue, he then stays for a longer stint uh, ministering to the Greeks in Thessalonica, and um, that goes rather well. Uh, he had a longer stint of ministry, and a great many were converted, we're told in, in Acts uh, we're told that even many of the leading women in the city responded well to the gospel. They, they believed. They trusted the gospel. They responded rightly to the gospel. And so as these conversions are taking place, persecution is increasing. Um, opposition to this message uh, this is a threat to the vitality of the city. If, um, if people begin to follow um, the Christian faith, and abandon the, the idolatry that, that would have been practiced in Thessalonica, it would um, be a threat even to just the, the, the relationship that they would have even had with the Romans if they would find out that they're worshiping another god, um, the one true god. So this would have been a threat to the Thessalonians, the city of Thessalonica, and so they're opposed to what's taking place, and so quickly they persecute this gospel movement. Um, and so, consequently, based on how hostile things get, it was necessary that Paul and Silas leave. And so that's what, that's what you read about in Acts 17. He, left, he was sent away by night. As you continue in Acts, he actually goes to Berea. You read about that as well. Things go well there also. But hostility, again, and guess who is hostile in Berea? It's these same Jewish uh, followers in Thessalonica, who hated Paul and his ministry, they traveled the 50 miles to make havoc of Paul's ministry in Berea. So he leaves Berea, next stop Athens, and then later he's going to go to Corinth. And in all of these settings, Paul is still being afflicted. It's not that Paul was avoiding 
um, persecution. It's that um, for the, this ministry to continue, he, he, would have to, he would be forced out of certain cities. And so even though he's in Corinth or, or Athens at certain points, the Thessalonians are very much on his mind. He loves them, he cares for them, and he's prayerfully thoughtful of them. So uh, as I was saying, let's walk through a couple of these highlights in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 2, you see that we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. There's this overall sense of thankfulness that Paul has for this church and the believers in the city. And Silas and Timothy would, would be amongst those who are thankful for them. Verse 3 talks of this, this constant prayerful remembrance that they had while they were separated from them. Looking at verse 4, just based on what they know from what they saw when they were with them, and then as we'll see this morning, what they've heard in this report following up on, on their initial conversion. Verse 4, they are confident, they are assured of their status before God. They have assurance of their salvation in light of the way that the gospel was received, the way that it was embraced, and the reality that they indeed are standing fast. Uh, verse 6, you see that this young church, this, this uh, new-to-the-faith uh, church, um, quickly became imitators of Paul. Paul would instruct the believers to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, he tells the Corinthians that. He tells Timothy that earlier in his ministry to Timothy. And that is what uh, he tells, or that's what he delights in seeing the Thessalonians doing. They imitated his faith. So their testimony starts spreading throughout all of Macedonia. And others are coming to Christ in light of this testimony of the Thessalonians. And their conversion is dramatically characterized by verse 9. Look at, look at what is said about how they responded to the gospel. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So their testimony is that of turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Um, in studying this week, it, it was quite something to read of, of the religion, um, the various religions, the the, just the, all sorts of types of idolatrous worship that would take place in Thessalonica. So to, to read of what they would have been turning from, and I'm not even comfortable really even mentioning the, the type of images that they would have worshipped or the acts that they would engage in, that they would consider worship. This is the type of ceremony that um, immoral and idolatrous ceremonies that they would have been turning from as they turned to God. And so Paul takes great comfort in their right response to the gospel. And so as you continue then in, in chapter 2, look at how dear they are to him. Uh, verse, verse 8 says, uh, Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 17, the same chapter, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. So they want to be with them. They have been hindered from being with them. They love them. They're very dear to them. 
Uh, he had not forgotten about them. Multiple times he had made attempts to be with them and all of those had been thwarted. And even you're, you're given a little bit of inside information uh, of Paul's awareness of why they had been thwarted. It was, in fact, um, Satan at work. Uh, the tempter has prevented them from going back to Thessalonica. So verse 18 says, I, Paul, again and again um, desired to be with you, but Satan hindered us. So Paul is being sincere in his love for them. He didn't just leave to, out of convenience. He left because he was forced out and he longed to be with them again. So his concern was informed by you know, the, the short time that he had with them. He wished he would have been with them longer. He is, his concern is informed by not only that amount of time that he had with them, he also just is aware of the affection that he has for them, the affection that they have for him. There's this reciprocal love that Paul has for them and that the Thessalonians have for Paul. So he wants to be with them, and he really wants to be with them because he is well aware that affliction is taking place, even if he hasn't gotten a report yet. He knows the difficulty that they are dealing with, and he's very much aware that this is to be taken seriously because this harm comes from Satan, who intended for these young, young converts to, to uh, abandon the faith, um, to, to fall away, to deny uh, Christ. And so that, that's what's happening as you jump into verse 1 of, verse, of chapter 3, when Paul says, therefore, you know, we couldn't bear it any longer. We we're willing to be left behind at Athens. So, so let's walk through the text then. That, that's the setting we find ourselves in as Paul desires to be with them. And he's going to continue, even if he's not with them face to face, he's going to minister to them through this letter. So verse 1, indeed, he couldn't bear it any longer. He had to be with them. They got to figure out something. What are they going to do? So we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. This wouldn't have been a safe setting for Paul to, to just set it up so that he would now be alone in Athens. You know, it would help him to have Silas and Timothy with him. Travel's difficult, but ministry is dangerous. And when you're alone, all of those things would be complicated, the travel and certainly the ministry. And so it wasn't ideal to be left alone, but out of his love for the Thessalonians and his concern for them, he was willing to be left behind in Athens. Very much a selfless decision. Uh, one commentator described it this way, that the well-being of these missionaries took second place to the concerns of the Thessalonian church. So, so if Paul's playing, you know, missionary, would you rather, his, his mindset is, would you rather be left alone in Athens or would you rather the Thessalonians be left alone? And so selflessly, Paul looked out for the interest of others and remained in Athens alone so that Timothy could go and minister to the church. He couldn't bear it any longer. A decision was made to send Timothy. Uh, so we read about that uh, in the very next verse. Uh, verse 1, we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Timothy was sent to, we'll read, strengthen and encourage the church. And then later you're going to see in verse 6, that he also is going to then be able to provide a report for Paul, give an update on how they're doing. So they're multifaceted purposes by sending Timothy. Go encourage and equip the saints 
strengthen them. Uh, that word even that we see translated as strengthen in English, it, it comes from the same um, word that we would get like steroids, what we would translate in English, this, this strengthening. That, that's, what, that's, what was to take, that's the word that's used in the Greek, to, to strengthen them, um, support them. Uh, that's what Timothy needed to do for them. Strengthen and encourage them, and then observe and report on their faith. And I hope you recognize how vital and important and necessary in evangelism uh, follow-up is, strengthening and encouraging, how important that is in evangelism. Because Paul was effective in his evangelism to the Thessalonians. They responded well to the gospel, but what they needed was this follow-up, this discipleship. I mean, if you even think of what we're commanded of in the Great Commission, that we would go and make disciples of all the nations. And then just in the very next verse of that Great Commission, we're reminded to teach them uh, all, to observe all that I commanded them. So we share the gospel, and then we disciple um, those who are saved. And so this discipleship ought to follow conversion. Paul must have just struggled so much that he's in Athens and not with them. And in fact, this was his normal effort of, of going back to the cities that he ministered to to strengthen and encourage them. You can read of this at the beginning of his second missionary journey, uh, Acts 15, uh, after he went through these cities, you know, already, then as he begins this second missionary journey, what prompted the trip was, uh, let us return and visit the brothers, uh, strengthening the churches. That's the motivation in Acts 15 for the second missionary journey. Uh, the third missionary journey, same thing, chapter 18. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. So, they'd responded well. The Thessalonians had turned to God from idols. Um, that speaks of repentance. They had heard the gospel. They, they know the truth of God, holy, creator over all, who is indeed loving and merciful and good, but he's holy. He can have nothing to do with sin. And so as Paul shared the gospel with them, they compared that with the lies that they had believed, this false worship that they had engaged in, and they repented of their wickedness, and they, they trusted in Christ. They responded rightly to the gospel. They placed their faith in Christ alone for salvation. So they turned to God from idols, and they were saved. And, and Paul delighted in that, and so now they needed to be strengthened and established in their faith. And so it's certainly an instruction to us about how to do evangelism. We don't just go share the gospel, and then upon the response, you know, pat them on the back, and leave them on their own. They're good to go now. They, they trusted in Christ. They need strengthening. They need, to, they need to know the truth. They need to be taught the truth. They need um, discipleship. And so this is, certainly, this is certainly a helpful reality to see as, as Paul desires so much that something happen so that they would be strengthened and encouraged and established in their faith. I'm curious, too, to think as you look at this, why did they send Timothy? I mean, do, you, do you find yourself wondering that? You know, Paul wants to be with them. He's tried multiple times to be with them, and it, it hasn't worked out. So they're thinking, it's not good for them to be alone. Someone needs to go. And it says, we, verse 2, sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's just kind of helpful to, to walk through what we know from this text. What was the basis for sending Timothy? I mean, they probably weighed the idea of sending Paul again, but 
he's going to be pretty recognizable. It might not, it's just going to be the same result probably. They're going to force him out quickly. Um, and Silas, I guess, could have gone as well, but you, you'll see in other places that Paul actually sends Tylus, Silas to other cities. And so you have this option of, of Timothy, this faithful co-worker in ministry, and, and convinced of the need in light of the gospel demands of, of, of calling others to the gospel and then discipling them, teaching them all that I command. They knew from the scriptures that ministry needed to continue in Thessalonica. They obviously had prayed about it because Paul speaks of constantly mentioning the Thessalonians in his prayers, night and day, fervently praying for the Thessalonians. So clearly Paul has thought through what they needed from the scriptures. He's prayed about how to accomplish this task of sending someone. And he didn't make the decision alone. The we sent Timothy statement makes it clear that Paul, Silas, and Timothy all kind of came together, this godly counsel to consider who should go, and so they sent him. So I point this out just because there's, this is often an issue for, for many Christians to think through, how do I make decisions? And in fact, a, a little book that we often will recommend to individuals struggling with God's will and how to make decisions in the gray areas of life, there's this book called Just Do Something. And, I mean, it's just helpful to even think that way. It's like Kevin DeYoung, and what he's saying in the book is a lot of times we really just desire this extra-biblical divine revelation of Go and do this. Marry her. Uh, move to this city. All of these type of things that we're, we want divine guidance for. Really, we just need to make wise decisions informed by Scripture. And so what Kevin DeYoung does in this book is he says, we ought to study the Scripture, seek wise counsel, pray, and then do something. And as I was reading through this account in, in 1 Thessalonians 3, I was like, you know what? That's actually exactly what the, these three men did in this scenario. The Thessalonians need someone there. And so they think biblically, they seek godly counsel, they pray fervently, and then they send Timothy. They don't overcomplicate it. It wasn't, oh, Timothy has a, a weak stomach. You probably can't send him. Or, you know, no. They just make sense. Send Timothy. He can go. Let's do it. So they send Timothy. All right. So you know some things already about Timothy. We talked about him in May, and I'm sure you got your notes from that sermon in front of you. Um, and uh, it, this, this background that we saw in, in 2 Timothy about, about his, this individual was that he, he grew up in Lystra. His mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, they were believers, faithful, godly women who ministered to him. Their fa- his father was a pagan Greek. Um, and Paul regarded him as a son in the faith. In fact, Timothy was probably saved under Paul's first missionary journey. And so here we are in this second missionary journey, and Paul's already, he's ready to send him out on this solo mission. In fact, he's going to send him to five different churches on these solo missions to, to minister to the faithful. And so that's what takes place here. Timothy is sent. And his motivation is to encourage and strengthen him so that, verse 3, no one would be moved by these afflictions. The afflictions that are taking place on a variety of levels are going to be a temptation for them to abandon the faith. Just just imagine the, the type of temptations that they would hear from family members and friends who worshiped false gods and hated seeing them turn to God from these false idols. They probably came to them in, in friendly whispers, man, it doesn't have to be like this. 
You know, you don't have to be afflicted this way. You don't have to face this persecution. Just, just abandon that nonsense that that oh, crazy-looking guy taught you. Just abandon it. Uh, one commentator I was even reading suggested that, that um, coaxing these new converts away from the faith um, on the pretense that persecution would even be the evidence that what they were believing was a hoax. I mean, that's exactly opposite of the truth. But just imagine what they would probably have said to the Thessalonians. The reason this is so difficult for you is because clearly this is God's judgment on what you're believing. If this was really of God, you wouldn't be persecuted for this. Just imagine all of the type of afflictions that they would face, both physically hostile affliction, but also just relationally difficult conversations of individuals trying to convince them to turn to false gods from the one true God. And the Thessalonians would have nothing for it. They did not listen to these lies. So then, Paul says in verse 4, the reality is the reason you're facing affliction is because of the truth of the gospel. Verse 4, he says, for when we were with you, we kept telling you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. This is, this is no surprise for them. They knew that they would face affliction when they responded to the gospel. They observed Paul experiencing affliction. Then they see Paul have to leave because of affliction. And then as Paul has left the city, now they are the objects of this affliction. But they can think back to what Paul promised them, that they would endure affliction. I mean, this is on the lips of Paul often throughout his ministry. Even think of 2 Timothy 3, when he reminds Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And there's no getting around that. And the Thessalonians were experiencing this. And so they needed to know, the reason you're being afflicted is because this is what Christ promised. This is the reality. Those who hate Christ will hate Christ's bride. So, again, just look at, as as Paul continues in verse 5, He reminded them that that this message was not some neglected truth. Paul taught this frequently to them, reminding them that they faced persecution. And so verse 5 says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. this This is a very real reality for Paul to think of the possibility of apostasy, knowing that the dangers of the tempter, that the tempter Satan, our our real enemy, would use this affliction to tempt them to abandon the faith. Even if if Jesus promised that we would face many afflictions, um, we'll, we'll be harmed, we'll be persecuted, we'll be brought before kings, uh, Jesus would say. Um, Some will be put to death, Jesus taught. Uh, You'll be hated by many for my name's sake. That's what Jesus promised. But even if that has been taught in the midst of persecution, we are tempted in a variety of ways to respond. But the reality of persecution is the testimony of Scripture, and it's the experience of the church throughout church history. Uh, We know of many who have denied that they were ever Christians under persecution. We've seen some church leaders even flee, um, some who recant their faith. But 
And we also see those who stand fast in the midst of persecution. And the Thessalonians are an example of that. What a joy and comfort to read of a church enduring affliction and standing fast in the midst of it. Um, As things get increasingly more and more hostile for us, and may we turn to the pages of 1 Thessalonians. We don't even have to go there. We can go all over the place in the scriptures to to read of um, the perseverance of the saints, to see the genuine faith on display in the midst of affliction. And that's what the Thessalonians are demonstrating. So um, that's actually how Paul is able to, to describe them the way he describes them at the beginning of the letter. Kind of like working backwards, just kind of look back again at what he calls them at the beginning of the letter. Turn to chapter one. Um, he had described them as loved by God. He described them as chosen by God. <clears throat> I'm speaking of verse four. This confidence, though, to be able to express that, I mean, he, Paul's not omniscient. Uh, God alone is omniscient. But when Paul thinks of the Thessalonians, he's confident of their faith. He knows they are chosen by God, loved by God, because he saw their response to the gospel, but now he has heard of their faith, the fruit of their faith, as their love for the brethren, their love for God, and their faith in God has increased in the midst of persecution. And so that is how Paul is able to describe them the way that he did. While apostasy was certainly a concern, um, temptation to return to idols was, was something that Paul was concerned about, his, his concern would be um, squelched. It would be dealt with as he reads of, or as he hears of Timothy's report. And so that's, that's what we find now in the, next, the last section of this chapter. Uh, he sent Timothy, and we're not even sure how long it took for Timothy to go, and then how much time he spent, and then to travel back, and then be again with Paul. So he's been waiting for some time, but Timothy has now arrived back, and Timothy has given this encouraging report, this great news of their faith and their love. It's been reported to Paul, and so now he's able to delight that the tempter's efforts have failed, and the Thessalonians are standing fast. I'd say more about, well, maybe I should. I was going to say more about Satan. Just He's real. Um, he is our enemy. He seeks our harm. I mean, we should take him seriously. Paul does. Jesus um, teaches us much about our enemy. Um, it's not some issue that we should just ignore. Uh, it was right for us this morning to sing about our enemy and, and he will hold me fast. Here are the words we sang. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. See what you're recognizing, identifying in that statement? That, that if it were not for the strength that God supplies, if it was not God preserving those whom he saves, when the tempter tempts, we would not prevail if it were not for um, God to, holding us fast, preserving those whom he loves. Uh, we sing other things about Satan as well. Um, before the throne of God above, we sing, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. 
who made an end to all my sin. So that's how we deal with our enemy. When Satan tempts us, we, we think upon truth and obey truth. Um, we, we look through gospel lenses. We're reminded of Christ, reminded of our identity in Christ, reminded that we are counted righteous in Christ. And so all of Satan's deceitful arguments bear no weight. They're, they're lies. So um, this encouraging report that Paul hears, he's just so glad to hear that Satan's efforts have proven vain. Isn't that interesting? He would have said, if, if Satan's work would have uh, been accomplished, Paul's work would have been in vain. All that difficulty that he endured in Thessalonica, it's all for nothing. If they, if they turned to, back to these false gods. But it's actually Satan's efforts that have, have proven um, vain because they're standing fast, as we'll read in verse 8. Okay, let's, let's continue then. You, you find yourself in verse 6. Timothy has come to us from you. And he has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Well, think what's interesting to Paul as he says this. It's not that, that Paul just wants people to like him. It's like, oh, I sure hope the Thessalonians think I'm swell. No, Paul is probably thinking, man, I, I left at night quietly. You know, they're probably wondering about that. They might resent that. They may have appreciated my time there, but feel that I've betrayed them by leaving them. And so what a comfort it is for Paul to hear from Timothy, hey, the, this, the love that you have for them, man, it's, it's reciprocal. They love you. They, they love the brethren. And, and so Paul is so pleased to hear of their love for him and their, their increasing love um, as he hears of their faith. So this report is characterized by a word that Paul loves, good news. In fact, this is the only time Paul uses that word to describe something other than the gospel. Here to hear, when he hears from Timothy, their faith, he describes it as the good news, to hear of their, their love. The good news that verse 8 tells us, they are standing fast. Uh, follow along, I'll read it again. For now we live, Paul says, if you are standing fast in the Lord. The summary basis for Paul's encouragement is, it's not that he's like, man, I don't want y'all to face affliction. He knows they're going to face affliction. He wants them to stand fast in affliction. And that's indeed what they're doing. And, and so it brings life. It brings vibrancy. It brings joy to a heart of an apostle who is in need of encouragement. Isn't that great? Timothy goes to encourage the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians' good report encourages Paul in the midst of affliction that Paul is facing uh, in the cities that he continued to minister to after he left Thessalonica. So stand fast. That's a command that Paul uses other places, and it's a reality in the life of this particular church. In Romans 11, he tells the believers to stand fast in your faith. Twice, he tells the Corinthians the same instruction. Be watchful, for six, chapter 16 of, chap, of 1 Corinthians. Be watchful, stand firm in your faith. Act like men, be strong. In 2 Corinthians, he says, we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Paul's desire for the churches was that they would stand firm in their faith. May that be our testimony. Grace Church of Tallahassee. 
May we be a church that stands firm in the faith, in the midst of affliction. And since it's the testimony of Thessalonica, and it's the testimony that ought to be true of us, I think it would be helpful to even think, what is it? What does it look like? What is standing fast? Um, how, how might it be described? Uh, look back at verse 9 of chapter 1. Uh, we've read this probably three times already, but just think of verse 9. Um, they themselves report concerning you. Uh, you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Standing fast is remaining faithful. So that's what this church did. They remained faithful to God in the midst of whatever circumstances God allowed. That's what it looks like. Standing fast is faithfulness to God, obedience to his word. That's what it looks like. Here's what it does not look like. You might be tempted, what does a church look like that stands fast? Well, it's probably a perfect church, right? No. The church at Thessalonica was not a perfect church, but it was a church that was standing fast. Instruction is still needed for this young church. They don't quite understand a variety of things. They're still confused by much of the immorality that they engaged in and considered worship earlier, and now they need to think of of this biblical sexual ethic. They need instruction about that. And so as you walk through the next several chapters in this letter, you see a variety of problems in the church. Growth is needed. They need to, even in the things they're doing well, they need to excel still more in these areas. Uh, They need to think rightly about the end times. In fact, their misunderstanding about the end times accommodated what appears to be an inclination they had for a lack of um, work ethic in in their jobs. And so there's instruction that was needed in regards to their view of, of God's design for work. So there was much instruction that the church needed. But uh, even in the midst of growth needed, they're standing fast. Um, that's, that's helpful for us. You know, we're not, we're not looking for, we're not expecting others to be perfect. And we certainly aren't, uh, we're recognizing we're not perfect. But man, we can be faithful. We can stand fast in the midst of affliction. My, my thoughts uh, around this idea, turn to something we, we learned this summer in our, in our Sunday school class. Many of, many of us were introduced to Richard Sibbs, um, and there's a particular book that he wrote, uh, The Bruised Reed. And in that book, relating to this idea of, you know, we're, we're saved by grace, but we're, we're still in need of grace, uh, he writes, grace does not do away with corruption all at once. Now, that's just a practical and obvious truth, but we ought to all be reminded of that. Even as recipients of God's grace, there's still growth needed. Um, Corruption doesn't just die away all at once. Uh, Sibs would write in this book, as new creatures, we grow by degrees. Uh, That's that's also just helpful instruction. One more Sibs quote, just because I think it's demonstrative of Paul's ministry to them. Sibs says, the best men are severe to themselves and tender over others. I feel like that's what Paul has been to this church. I mean, he says he's the chief of sinners elsewhere. He's mindful of of this battle against sin that he needs to take seriously and the growth in godliness that Paul needs to pursue. But he's very thankful for the Thessalonians for the work that God is doing in them rather than focused on the work that remains. 
Uh, and so he, he's severe on his own sin and tender towards these believers in Thessalonica. So standing fast, that's what it doesn't look like. It, standing fast doesn't mean perfection. Uh, the Thessalonians have much to learn, much to grow in. And we also know this already, and it's painful to explore, but we know what it reveals when, when someone does not stand fast, someone who abandons the faith. They professed, maybe for a time, they were of us, but they went out from us, First John 2 tells us. That communicates to us that they were not of us, because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That's First John 2.19. So standing fast is vital in the Christian life. I was just at a conference a couple weeks ago, ran into my roommate from my first year of seminary, so the year before the parenting class. And my roommate and I, at that time, we, we didn't agree on a lot of like tertiary things, but man, we, we, were, we were very like-minded on the gospel and like-minded on secondary issues even, but we liked, you know, different football teams and stuff like that. But, and so that was the source of our conflict then. And so then a few weeks ago, when we just interacted with each other, we just explored what a comfort it was <clears throat> to see each other um, decades later and standing fast. It was um, just, that's not true of everybody we remember from our dorm, uh, even from the lectern, certain professors even. And so we recognize that some abandoned the faith, but what a comfort and joy it is to, to see those standing fast in the Lord. All right, well, we, we, we've got to finish this chapter. Verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Is it clear to you yet how much Paul desires to be with them? He wants to see them. He wants to be face to face with this church that he loves. And um, what reason could there be for God preventing this? I mean, isn't it hard to even imagine? It's not good for the Thessalonians to be alone. It's not good for Paul to be left alone in Athens. Why doesn't God just bring this about so that Paul can be back with them? Because later, this prayer is going to be answered. Multiple times in Acts, we see Paul back in Macedonia amongst the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians. Um, but why not now? Why would God prevent them? And, and I thought this was just a really neat thought. I read it in one of the commentaries. You're looking at 1 Thessalonians. If God would not have hindered, allowed for Paul to not be able to go back to the church, you would not have this letter. And so really, you can just see the providence of God on display, the, the affliction that they endured, the difficulty uh, through many attempts to go back to Thessalonica, it just didn't happen. Well, why did it just not happen? Was it because God wasn't all-powerful? He couldn't hinder Satan's thwarting? No, it was that this is what God had allowed. This is what God had providentially um, planned for Paul to desire to be amongst them. So he's going to send someone to get a report, and then that report is going to come back to him, and it's going to prompt a letter. And then that letter is going to be written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it's going to be distributed to the Thessalonians and then it's going to be read here on whatever day it is in October, um, right? 2023. Here we are reading 1 Thessalonians. So that, that's your answer. 
on why, why Paul was, was hindered. It's not, Paul didn't care. it's not because Paul didn't care. It's not because God didn't care. It's because God had sovereign purposes for, for why the delay. And so, 1 Thessalonians. Um, that, that's got to frustrate Satan, right? To think of, man, here's his attempts, here's his attempts. Look what he accomplished. Um, one of the 66 books of the Bible, you know, is, is written because of the, uh, the affliction that he sought to bring on this young church. And so, so you have this letter in front of you and you have this prayer that concludes the letter. And you actually learn a lot about God. You learn a lot about other theological realities through this prayer of Paul. Verse 11, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. God is all-powerful. He is the one true God. You see the deity of Christ on display in, in the address of this prayer as Paul writes to um, God and Father and our Lord Jesus. Um, his prayer is that they would increase and abound in the love that is already present, but that ought to excel still more, so that these believers who have been justified when they responded to the gospel are being sanctified as they grow in likeness, will one day be glorified. And that's how the prayer ends, speaking of this glorification, that they, their hearts would be um, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Christ is coming back for his bride. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would find the same encouragement from this report of the, the steadfast and immovable faith of the Thessalonians not because of their own skills, strength, effort, abilities, but because you held them fast. They were standing fast in the Lord in the midst of affliction because of your preserving grace. God, would you preserve this church? May we remain faithful. Uh, may we continue to preach Christ and crucified. May you be made much of from this pulpit. May what is taught then go forth to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that you are made much of in our homes and in every area of our lives. We love you and thank you and praise you. God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that is not trusted in Christ, that they would respond rightly to the gospel, that they would repent of their sin and turn to Christ, the only provision for our sin. Um, they turn to Christ and receive forgiveness and be declared righteous um, because of Christ. We love you and we thank you and praise you for this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.